first study, of course, was the uh, financial support that Barnabas enabled his ecclesia with, looking after the widows and those that were in need. Uh, we saw his introduction and his support of Saul into the Jerusalem ecclesia and the work that he did in the background there of reintroducing Saul and helping him into that ecclesial fellowship zone. Uh, and now tonight we want to have a look at another level and another layer. We want to see this, a good man, the importance of innovation. And this particular study will focus on the man who was sent to now blend together and merge together and bridge, as it were, two different ecclesias and two different cultures. So, of course, the Jerusalem Ecclesia had grown and had developed uh, through the ministration of the apostles and was preeminently of, of a Jewish culture. Uh, and the disciples had been spread abroad because of the persecution of Stephen, and some of them went up, as we read in the record, to Antioch. And now there's the emergence of a Gentile Ecclesia in a very different culture. And who's the man they're going to send to bridge that gap? Well, it's actually going to be Barnabas because he has the specific qualifications and the calibre and the ability to reconcile, to rebuild and to join together two, uh, a little, two vastly different, in some way, ecclesial groups. So for Barnabas, that was, again, uh, this wonderful spirit that we see in this activity in Acts chapter 11. So we read tonight about the, uh, the background to this particular uh, development there in verse 19. Verse 19 talks about the scattering of the disciples because of the persecution that arose because of Stephen. But you'll notice particularly Luke in his narrative emphasises this aspect about the Jews only. See at the end of verse 19, it says, preaching the word to none but the Jews only. Now there's a, there's a couple of little interesting words in verse 19 and verse 20 which relate to Barnabas, and that's the word Cyprus. I don't know if you noticed that, but again... In verse 19, it talks about Cyprus and verse 20, and some of them were men of Cyprus. You know, you think, well, why would that be important? I mean, Cyprus wasn't big as far as the Roman Empire was concerned. But, of course, there is that attachment to the whole narrative of what Barnabas was involved in. That was the homeland, or at least Barnabas had some extensive assets there in Cyprus. So there's a linkage already being developed in the narrative to Barnabas. Now, we'll notice that Luke introduces uh, the concept of preaching to the Gentiles as, as a bit of a contrast to verse 19, because verse 20 says, Some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, northern Africa, which when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians. Now, you know, we would normally imagine the Grecians, and, and rightly so, to be the Hellenistic Jews, who spoke Greek, of course, and were generally fairly more liberal as far as their outlook on life is concerned, in contrast to the Jewish culture, which is very conservative. You know, they'd grown up through a background of the law of Moses, so there were rituals and, and, and rigorous, rigorousness about the law. And the Hellenistic Jews were a li little bit more uh, liberal with that. But Luke is not really talking about Hellenistic Jews. He's talking about Gentiles here, because when you wind back to the end of verse 18, you'll notice there's this introduction. Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. So what Luke is building in his narrative is a contrast, Jew and Gentile. And the, the narrative uh, should also state in verse 20, just at the end of verse 20, it says, they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians. The literal narrative of the Greek is spake also. So if you look up the diaglot, the diaglot inserts the word spake also as a point of emphasis. So it wasn't just to the Jews, they also spake to an extended group of people, the Gentiles, who previously, of course, were not really connected with the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in a major way. So it's not so much... Uh, Hellenistic Jews we're talking about, but Gentiles. Connection, as we've said, the end of verse 18. And the same idea, of course, is in Romans 1, verse 6, 16, isn't it? Uh, it talks about the power of God is salvation to Jew and to Greek, 
Well, the contrast is not Jew and Greek. The contrast is Jew and Gentile there in Romans 1.16, which is the same narrative here that, that Luke is developing in his uh, writing here in Acts chapter 11. So what, what the, uh, Luke is telling us is that there was a growing ecclesia of not Greeks, but Gentiles that was developing in the Antioch area because of the scattering of the disciples. And the gospel was now being extended beyond the borders of the Jewish nation, as it were, itself. So they're going to send Barnabas up there to do some nurturing, really, of the ecclesia there. Um, and sometimes behind the scenes, we just forget what sort of a journey that would be. You know, oh, we went to Antioch. Well, that's interesting. Well, no, it's actually quite a big journey. So here's down in Jerusalem where Barnabas was. He's got to go all the way up here to Antioch in Syria, 480 kilometres, I'm guessing a journey of a couple of weeks. So it wasn't as though it was just round, you know, down the road and round the corner. It was quite an extensive journey. And you'll notice that uh, as far as Antioch in Syria was concerned, the historians tell us it's the third largest city in the Roman Empire. That's quite an astounding fact, really. Rome and Alexandria were the big cities. Uh, Antioch had a population of around about half a million people. So, you know, it's not a little country village. It's quite a large cosmopolitan area. And Nicholas, who was the first proselyte, was a Gentile himself. Remember back in the early chapters of Acts when there were seven brethren appointed, it talks about Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. So in some ways, we always say Cornelius was the first Gentile, but actually he's preceded by Nicholas, who was a Gentile from Antioch. So uh, that's back in Acts chapter 6 and verse 5. But again, in the narrative, quite interestingly, in verse 22, it says that the tidings came back to verse 22, uh, to the ears of the ecclesia at Jerusalem. Now, I like how Luke puts the next phrase. And they sent forth Barnabas that he should go, and here it comes, as far as Antioch. As far as Antioch. So there were some who rejoiced at the development of this ecclesia in Antioch, and Barnabas was selected and instructed to go as far as Antioch. Well, you know, that wasn't as far as Rome, the edge of the, empire, uh, the Roman Empire, but... Within that phrase is the concept that this was uncharted territory as far as uh, the ecclesia was concerned. The gospel now has been projected way out as far as Antioch. Of course, Saul, the Apostle Paul, is going to take it much further than that. But initially, there's a development of another ecclesia as far as Antioch, which is quite astounding. So we might say that was the, uh, the fringe area of the then-known geographical ecclesial world. So Barnabas was the one that was selected. And I think we need just to wind back a little bit and think, why Barnabas? There were a lot of qualified brethren, including perhaps one of the apostles, who could have made this significant journey to make an attachment to the Antioch Ecclesia and, and to bring them into the, the circle and the realm of the Jewish central ecclesia, we might say. But it wasn't one of the apostles, and there were other brethren, I'm sure, but it was Barnabas who was selected because of his spirit of reconciliation and rebuilding. And I think as well, remember on our first evening, there was that little point of narrative, he was a Levite. Um, because, of course, the Jewish people were very protective of their culture and their background and their history. And so now we've got an ecclesia positioning itself out in Antioch, which perhaps didn't have that history or that background. Who should they send? They wanted to send someone that was balanced. Barnabas had a background in the law of Moses because he's a Levite. So he's a good, solid brother to send out to this ecclesia, to give them encouragement and to develop them as well. And he had a proven track record that the right qualifications were not only in place, but also he's the right man for the right job because he was an encourager. So I think we need to uh, divest ourselves. I think I've done the same thing. That I painted the Antioch Ecclesia as in competition to the Jerusalem Ecclesia. Not at all. 
We'll see this unfold and unpack a little bit, but the Jerusalem Ecclesia wanted to encourage and develop the progression of the truth beyond even the borders of Antioch. So they selected Barnabas. So point one, he was exclusively chosen for many brethren. He wasn't the only one. They didn't look around and say, well, we've got no one to send. Let's just send Barnabas. They would have had a number of choices. Remember, 3,000, 5,000 members. Secondly, he had a reputation for careful discernment and integrity. He was a man of integrity, transparency, and honesty. Saw that in our first study. He had the respect of the apostles, the elders, and the ecclesia. They weren't just going to send anyone out there. They wanted someone they could trust. As we've already said, we've got, he was a Levite. He had a deep knowledge of the law of Moses. So this was an ecclesia that really had grown up without that background, and there needed to be some sort of counterbalance to blend the ecclesias together. They couldn't just do their own thing. So he's got to blend these ecclesias together. He was from Cyprus, and we've already emphasised there in verse 19 and 20, uh, the brethren that started the work there were from Cyprus, fellow countrymen. He'd integrate quite well uh, with that background. Uh, and th the main point was he was the encourager, so there, was, there would be a positive edge to his survey. And I've just got the note there, he wasn't chosen to investigate, he was chosen to encourage. And we'll see that unfold particularly uh, in the, the next verse. But I just want to cross over quickly to uh, Ignatius of Antioch. So Ignatius was a brother in this particular area. So he didn't write any uh, elements as far as the canon of scripture is concerned, but there are historical documents from Ignatius. So he lived AD 35 to 108. He authorised seven letters. Uh, he wanted to counteract the teaching of two groups, the Judaizers and the Docetists. So that was uh, his historical uh, writings. We know he was a friend of Polycarp as well, who was possibly a student of the Apostle John, so there was those connections. And again, historically, we can, we can look at his life. Uh, he was sentenced to death by the Emperor Trajan. He wrote seven letters. Uh, he refers to the Ecclesia, quite interestingly, as whole or universal. So he comes from Antioch, and whenever he writes, he talks about the universality or the unity of the Ecclesia. So obviously that was a, a thing that was important to him. Uh, he emphasised the responsibility of arranging brethren in these letters, uh, and he wrote about fears for ecclesial unity, and there was other elements that he wrote as well, and he quotes quite extensively from some of the New Testament books. So, you know, it's, it's not someone that we're familiar with, it's a character in the Bible, but historically he came from that area of Antioch, he wrote significantly about uh, the background that we're talking about this evening. So Barnabas is going up there, he's a Levite, he's grounded in the law. What does he uncover in the ecclesia at Antioch? So we come to verse 23, it says, when he came, he saw the grace of God and he was glad. So this is the you know, first point that we note, this is the report, I guess we can say, of Barnabas about the Antioch Ecclesia. He saw the evidence of the grace of God and he was glad. That's his first response. It wasn't that, well, I came up here and they're a very liberal ecclesia and they've discarded the law of Moses. This ecclesia now begins to embrace, as it were, the spirit of Barnabas. There's no envy, there's no jealousy, there's no resentment on the part of Barnabas for the rapid expansion at Antioch. It was a growing, abounding, mushrooming ecclesia and he doesn't say, well, you know, we need to put the cap on this. Let's get back to the law of Moses. Now he comes there and he observes the grace of God. So from a Levitical, priest, from a Levitical point of view, of course, um, there's that beautiful contrast beyond the law to the grace. And I wonder sometimes in the conversation that he had with the Apostle Paul, because when we, we read through the New Testament writings of the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul underlines, doesn't he, uh, with a lot of emphasis, this whole overarching principle of the grace of God. And Paul came from a background brought up at the feet of Gamaliel, Pharisee of the Pharisee, loved the law, 
And he's able to do a complete U-turn, a flip-flop. And I wonder whether because of some of these conversations with Barnabas, Paul too came to appreciate the grace of God. So that's the first observation of Barnabas when he comes to Antioch. And we'll notice as well in verse 23, not only does he observe the grace of God and he was glad because of that, but then he paracletio them. And that's, again, remember the nickname of Barnabas? The son of consolation, son of paracletos, the son of exhortation. Here he is, and this is why the elders sent him into this area, to encourage the growth and the development and the expansion of the brothers and sisters in Christ at Antioch. So he paracleoed them again. He called them to his side and he gave them encouragement. He is a man who is just skilled in positivity. And he helped them to focus beyond what we sometimes see in people's conversion, that flash of emotion when they suddenly come in and they think, well, the truth is wonderful, and there's that flash of emotion, they're all excited, and then that you know, sort of spirals downward pretty quickly over the years, and then they drift away from the truth. So Barnabas wanted to make sure they were well and truly grounded in the truth, and he gives that positive edge that would have encouraged them. And so that's what we read, of course. What did he exhort them about? That would, with purpose of heart, they would cleave, it's a relational term, cleave to the Lord. So that's the term, of course, that's used back in Genesis 2, verse 24, between Adam and Eve, isn't it? A relational word. Um, it wasn't all about just the doctrine, the law of Moses, those foundation principles. It was about an emotional and an intellectual thing as far as an attachment to the truth was concerned. A cleaving, a cleaving to the Lord. So that was to be developed in a relational style. And so Barnabas, of course, came and he exhorted them. And, of course, this is something that we do for ourselves. We need that exhortation, don't we, brothers and sisters? The last couple of years have been quite unsettling for all of us, uh, whether it's just locally or whether on a global scale. We see the unsettlement of people all over the place, their rebellious attitude, and that sort of influence, it bleeds into the ecclesia as well, into our, into our heart and soul a little bit. We want to be encouraged in the things of God. That's why we have a, a Sunday morning exhortation, so we can lift ourselves up again. Well, there's Barnabas in Antioch doing that. And, of course, he's just reinforcing these particular principles uh, as well. So here on, the, on mission work, uh, they went about confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we, through much tribulation, should enter into the kingdom of God. So there were Paul and Barnabas on that particular occasion. Paul had been stoned, and they get back up and they exhort brothers and sisters to continue in the faith. So a very practical exhortation. Again, in Thessalonians there, we exhort you by the Lord Jesus Christ you ought to walk and please God and abound in that. And again, uh, quite wonderfully in Hebrews, not to forsake the assembling of ourselves, but exhorting one another. And we see that in a practical way, simply by our attendance here. Our older brothers and sisters, their consistency in attendance becomes an exhortation. So that's what uh, Barnabas is doing there. So what's the, the, the focal point of his exhortation? Well, at the end of verse 23, he says that with purpose of heart... So, you know, purpose of heart doesn't mean half-hearted. And perhaps sometimes when we've been a long time in the truth and, you know, we've had a thousand special efforts and we've listened to 5,000 talks and, you know, sort of the edge comes off a little bit and we're not as excited as we used to be. So we can't be half-hearted, really, is what Barnabas is saying. In the truth, our heart has to be prioritised to love the things of God. It has to be wholehearted. This is his exhortation. So it's not just a, a flash of enthusiasm, which I can imagine that, and, and early ecclesias have that, don't they? As they begin building their ecclesia and joining together and there's all that excitement. He doesn't want to see that fade at all. So he says we need to prioritise in life our heart. 
So we can have a heavy heart in the truth, we can be half-hearted in the truth. James talks about having a double heart. So these are all elements. We've got to compress that in and make sure our heart is focused and prioritised on where we want to be and what we want to do in life. And of course, Daniel is a man who is commended for his purpose of heart from a teenager. And again, it's just a wonderful thing to see our young people deciding to commit their lives to Christ and are being baptised and they're prioritising their life to dedicate it to, to Christ. So here's Daniel 1 verse 8. He purposed in his heart, of course, same idea. Here in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 9, 7, uh, you need to purpose and give definition to what you want to give in the truth. It's not just like we randomly wander in here you know, on a Wednesday and a Sunday. It's like we determine that we're going to be here, first priority. It's what Barnabas was exhorting them about. And again, here in Acts chapter 4 and verse 32, the multitude that believe were of one heart and soul. So they were united in their development, their maturity, their progression of the truth. We need to think about ourselves. How are we going? Being 10, 20, 30, 40 years in the truth? Still wholehearted about the truth? Well, here in Colossians, Paul says not just outwardly, just, you know, well, we need to get our name on the roll or we want brothers and sisters to see that we're still here. He says in singleness of heart, fearing God. And finally here uh, in Chronicles, Old Testament reference, uh, these were the men that assembled to David and they weren't divisive. They weren't saying, well, we're not sure if Saul's going to you know, continue, uh, so maybe we'll, we'll sort of go both ways. They were not of a double heart. They gave themselves totally to the service of, of David. So that's the encouragement that, that Barnabas distributed to the brothers and sisters there up in Antioch. And you'll notice... Uh, there's an addition of the, the character of Barnabas in verse 24. This is a very beautiful thing. This is put into the narrative by Dr. Luke. Um, here's a little snapshot. We don't have photos, but there's a little snapshot of Barnabas. He was a good man, three, three qualities really. He was a good man, he was full of the Holy Spirit, and he's a man of faith. So, you know, they're pretty simple talents really, isn't it? Good man, full of the Holy Spirit, and faithful. It doesn't say that he had distinguishing and unique uh, abilities and, and characteristics that really qualified him for an exceptional job. It doesn't say that at all. He's a good man. He's full of energy and enthusiasm. And he's faithful. And that can be us. We can be that sort of person, can't we, brothers and sisters? You know, we, we may not have extensive university degrees. might not have letters after our name. We might not work in significant places in this world. But we can be good people. We can be enthusiastic and love the truth and we can have consistency in faith. It's, that's not hard to do. And Barnabas encourages us to do that. Luke 6 and verse 45 says, A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth that which is, is good. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. He's a good man. He's got a good heart and he's solid and reliable. We can lean upon that sort of person in times of our own trouble. So what's interesting is in this description of he was a good man, there's only, um, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, one other man who was a good man, and that's Joseph of Arimathea, who in a very similar way gave up his wealth and his position to be with Christ. So Luke 23 verse 50 talks about Joseph of Arimathea, who was a good man. Why? Because he's looking for the kingdom of God. So of course, whenever, I don't know if you've had this conversation, people say, how are you doing? You say, I'm, I'm pretty good, thanks. But oh, there's no, none good but one. You know, and well, now you've got to come back on that because, oh, no, no, you're wrong there because Barnabas is a good man, so is Joseph Arimathea. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes in our conversation, we, we sort of like to project ourselves of our, our knowledge of the word. So, there was none good, no, not one. Well, there's a couple of examples there that were good men. 
And the record also says he was full of the Holy Spirit. Now let's just think about it. What does that mean? You know, he was full of the Holy Spirit. How could a person be full of the Holy Spirit? Does that mean, you know, Barnabas went about and he did lots of miracles and we could see, well, oh, he's got the gift of the Holy Spirit. Look, he's healing and people are sick and they're coming to him and, and they're going away and they're recovered. Is that what that means, full of the Holy Spirit? Because there's no record of Barnabas up to this point in time doing any miracles at all. The, the miracle of Barnabas was his spirit, his attitude, his positivity. But it says there he was full of the Holy Spirit. So what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that he had the ability, although he would have, uh, to heal people in a physical way. It means more that he had that ability to encourage and to exhort through prophetic utterances. Okay, that was one of the gifts of the Spirit. And he's linked with some very powerful personalities. Here's one, John the Baptist. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. Now, you know, what miracles did John the Baptist do that are recorded in Scripture? What miracles, practical miracles of healing and all those sorts of things did he do? Well, he didn't do that. But he was very powerful in the way he projected and prefaced the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and built people up in expectation. That's, John, that's Barnabas. That's what he's doing. So he's, he's very similar there. It says Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and spake with a loud voice. Again, here it is, a projection of their hope and aspiration for the future. This is what Barnabas is all about. Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit. The apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages. Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. So what I'm demonstrating here is it wasn't he didn't go around healing people and people stepped back and said, look at his power. It was done verbally by encouragement. And the other interesting thing is he's connected to Stephen because there, in that little phrase there, it says he was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And that phrase is used exactly of Stephen the Evangelist, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. It's repeated twice in Acts 6, verse 5 and 8. So it's almost sort of a, a mirror effect of spirit of Stephen with all his effervescent spirit and his energy and his enthusiasm embedded in Barnabas now as he goes forth to a new ecclesia not to criticise, not to put restrictions on them, but to encourage and develop them in their calling in Christ. So that's something that um, we can do as well, brothers and sisters. For Barnabas, he had a strong vision of the future and he passed that on to others. He was firm in his beliefs and he communicated that to other people. And that's so reassuring for us, isn't it? We live in an age of uncertainty. You know, we tap in on the internet to find out certain pieces of information and there's, there's, there's so much disparity between it, we sort of come away thinking, well, I don't know whether that was a good thing or a bad thing. Or, you know, sometimes we get a little bit of a, a medical problem, we look it up and we find we've got some obscure tropical disease that only three people in the world have got. <laughs> so, you know, we go away very nervous. But that's the world today, a world of uncertainty. But for Barnabas, he went up there and he encouraged him to cleave to the Lord because that's the only option. Look at the vision we've got, the hope of the future. That's the man. What was the result? Well, we come to verse uh, 24, the end of verse 24, and there's his name. And much people were Josephed unto the Lord. Remember, we talked in our first study, his real name is Joseph. But he was nicknamed Barnabas. And it says there, considerable numbers were added, that's the word Joseph, or increased to the Lord. Well, then, of course, what was happening here is that his words of encouragement so engendered the ecclesia that it mushroomed even more. So the growth was phenomenal. The Barnabas is thinking, well, I don't know that I can handle all this myself. I need to bring on some more resources, some more people to help. So where does he go? 
Amazingly, in verse 25, it says, Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus, and he wanted to seek out Saul. And I just want to talk about four points here about Barnabas um, that we, we can extract from that verse. And the first one is he wasn't a proud man. He needed some help, and he was big enough to accept that he couldn't be everything to everyone. And I think that's inspiring because, again, you know, we can have prominent brethren that seem to have an amazing uh, variety of talents, but Barnabas was big enough to realise, I need some help, and the right man for the right job is Saul. I need to go and find him and bring him on board. So that's, you know, one little insight into uh, his character. Secondly, he was very definitive in the person that he chose. Um, he could have chosen a number of brethren. I'm sure down in Jerusalem there were inspiring young brethren that had come in the truth that had a lot of energy that could have, of course, transferred up to the Antioch Ecclesia. But he wanted Saul. He knew there was a, a right brother for the job. I don't know if he'd seen him within the last 10 years because that's where Saul was. He'd been in Tarsus for 10 years. But he thought through the situation and he knew Saul had the right qualifications. He had uh, an instinctive skill, this is Saul, for his logical argument and reasoning on the scriptures. We know he was very profound in that. He would be an ideal addition to promoting the truth in the Antioch area. And not only that, Saul respected Jewish protocols. You know, he didn't just discard them and say, well, we'll preach to the Gentiles. He was very sensitive. And, you know, there are references where it says that Paul, on his mission work, spoke to the Jews, and when they didn't hear, he went to the Gentiles. So he understood all that as well. So he was the right... So he thought through that. Barnabas thought through that. Uh, thirdly, I think he may have said it with Paul because Paul, as an apostle, could also transfer the Holy Spirit gifts, and that would have been helpful in the Antioch Ecclesia. And the fourth thing, and the, perhaps one of the most important things, it confirms Barnabas' understanding of the concept of forgiveness. And Barnabas was big on reconciliation. The ecclesia in Antioch had its foundation, it sprang forth because of the brothers and sisters that were scattered because of the persecution of Saul. Same man. Remember, that, that, that's already in the narrative, we read that. The brothers and sisters fled for their lives up to Antioch. Saul was the cause of that. And Barnabas is putting all this together in Antioch and he says, you know what? I need to be able to bring Saul across because, well, he's lost himself out there in Tarsus and we could do with his resource here. And he needs to rebuild and repair and reintegrate into the lives of brothers and sisters that he hurt. Again, that's not easy for any of us to do. I'm sure we've had conversations where we've walked away and thought, I shouldn't have said that. It got out of control. Uh, and then perhaps we, we, we have the pride that limits us to rebuilding and reattaching ourselves to that particular person that were offended. So Barnabas is big on reconciliation. He's going to get Saul and bring him back right into the area of the families and the brothers and sisters that he upset at one stage. He's, he wants Saul to repair the damage he'd done. That's a right process. It's a right, right pro, pro, protocol. So the beautiful thing about Barnabas is he's not a man of prominence. He doesn't platform himself as being the one and only person in this situation. He brings Saul back into the equation in a spirit of humility and appreciation. So that again is something for us to consider in our ecclesial life. Um, there are brothers and sisters who are more capable in certain areas than perhaps we are, <laughs> but sometimes we just feel as though we've got to do it because we want it done our way. That's not the barn of a spirit. And there are brothers and sisters that have actually relocated their lives to help in the progression of the truth, and they've had those uh, particular resources and skills and abilities to be able to do that. Okay.
Um, and so on mission work, we've had families, of course, relocate. Uh, Luke and Jess uh, uh, Mansfield up in um, Enfield Ecclesia spent nine months in Cambodia. You know, so it's sort of lovely to, to see that people are uh, able to, to take that on board. And that really was what Barnabas was doing here and he's inviting Saul to be part of that. So chronologically, of course, we, um, we come to this particular position here where uh, he's with Paul in the Antioch Ecclesia for one year. Acts 11 verse 26 defines that period for us, around about AD 46-47. Okay? And very soon he's going to go on a mission journey with the Apostle Paul as well, once they establish the Ecclesia. But we'll notice there in verse 26 that they spent a year there. And the way Luke writes the narrative is it was a year of refreshment and enjoyment. Because it says there in verse 26, when he found him, so it seems as though they hadn't had a lot of concept necessarily, he brought him to Antioch and it came to pass for a whole year they assembled with the ecclesia, taught the people, and they were called Christians. So they assembled, they joined together, there was cooperation. Uh, they had obviously a gospel uh, promotion activity going on. They had new converts. They had to teach and ground in the truth. They gave structures to the ecclesia. They developed it. They nurtured it. And we notice, as we've already said at the end of verse 26, it says they were first called Christians. Interesting comment. Uh, well, that word means Christ-like, doesn't it? Or Christ ones, Christians. So previously, when we look at the New Testament record, they weren't ever described as Christians. This is the first time. Previously, we have a number of descriptions, disciples, believers, uh, Nazarenes, you know, from Nazareth, followers of Christ from Nazareth, Galileans, or people of the way. This is the first time they're being described as, quote, Christians. And why would that be? It was because they were truly, in this ecclesia, followers of Christ in their lifestyle. All right? So when people looked at them, they said they're like Christ. So they could look at these people and by their lifestyle, their demeanour, their character, their conversation, they connected those people with Christ. And that's a, that's a really wonderful thing. And that particular term, of course, is used later on by the Apostle Peter. He says in 1 Peter 4.16, in fact, it's only used twice in the New Testament, um, 1 Peter 4.16, Peter says, Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. So in that term, uh, what, it, what it's defining is a lifestyle, not just a set of beliefs. Sometimes I, I wonder whether we sort of hide behind our titles, Christadelphians, uh, behind just simply our theological beliefs rather than the whole lifestyle that we live. So this is the point of exhortation that these were Christians and they were identified because people saw them and they saw Christ being followed. And think about ourselves. When people look at us uh, within the ecclesia, within our family, husband, wife, our kids, do they look at us, people we are employed with, people we go to uni with, do they look at us and say, they're a little bit different, uh, they're Christ followers. Because that's, again, who we want to be in real terms. So again, we are known perhaps... Uh, by the title Christadelphians, which Brother Thomas uh, coined back there in, during the uh, American Civil War. And that is a significant title as well because it marks a difference. Again, I don't think Christian is the right title for us to have because that would just be a, a greyness. And again, over the last five years or so, Christianity has deteriorated into, well, be anyone, be anything, you don't have to change, just come along. So that's where the definition of Christ, Christian has gone. So it is important for us to retain... I think our title of Christadelphians as a uniquely uh, different group of people who love the word, who have a statement of faith that is consistent with the word, 
and they live a life that is consistent with that statement of faith and with the word of God. Well, one of the problems uh, that was now going to occur in, in verse 27 and 28 is that there's a famine. Historically occurred around about AD 46. But what's interesting in verse 27 and 28, look at this. Verse 27, in those days came prophets from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now, that's a great little statement because here's the cohesion between Jerusalem and Antioch. You know, I had this preconception that there was a, you know, there, there was a bit of antagonism between the two ecclesias. One was sort of very conservative and the other was very liberal and, you know, they didn't get on. No, not, not true because there's, a, there's an encouragement of prophets that are being cycled through from Jerusalem up to Antioch to help educate and grow the ecclesia. So they were fully supportive of inter-ecclesial, we might say, fellowship arrangements. They're helping the ecclesia to grow in the truth. Prophets are being sent. And look at the result. Beautiful result. Look at verse 29. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send some financial support out of the brethren down in Judah and Jerusalem. I mean, right there is the Barnabas spirit. That's an outcome of the reciprocation of prophets coming up from Jerusalem, teaching them, and the Ecclesia in Antioch says, what can we do in a practical way? We want to help our brothers and sisters down in Jerusalem. And so they send financial support down. Well, that was our first study. That was, that, that's the Barnabas spirit. He thought, how can I help my brothers and sisters? And here it is being echoed in the atmosphere of the Antioch Ecclesia. So here's that beautiful outcome of sending Barnabas up to Antioch. He bridged that gap, which could have sort of become a chasm, perhaps if it wasn't handled correctly. He bridged that gap to such an extent that not only one ecclesia was of one heart and soul in Jerusalem, but the whole brotherhood, the whole then known brotherhood became one heart and one soul, work of Barnabas. Amazing, wonderful. And verse 30 says, which they did. Oh, I do like that, flight, that, that little comment there, which they did. Because, you know, often we prognosticate what we should do. You know, we sit, we sit in on a Sunday morning, we hear the exhortation, we make a couple of mental notes, I must ring that sister, I must send a note to that brother, I must have a talk, I must do this, and we never ever do it. So, you know, the spirit is there, but the practicality isn't. But this ecclesia not only wanted to send some relief, they actually did it in verse 30. And we always talk and make a mental note that we should do something, we never get around to doing it, but they did. And, interestingly, look at who takes it at the end of verse 30. They sent it by the hand of, the, of Barnabas, Barnabas and Saul. So Barnabas made the journey back to Jerusalem because he was trustworthy, had a large sum of money, and he's continuing to layer his work because he takes Saul with him. He's going to reintroduce Saul back into the Ecclesia of Jerusalem after 10 years. He's bridging Ecclesias, and he never forgets about individuals and individuals in one action. Come on, Saul, let's go back down to the Ecclesia in Jerusalem. We still need to repair our, our fellowship with that. So he didn't just wave it off as something unimportant. He's big on rebuilding and repairing relationships and he makes sure it's done properly. So Saul comes down with Barnabas and they head down to Jerusalem. So you'll notice there in chapter 12, verse 1, we're now introduced to another interesting situation because the execution of the Apostle James happened while they were there. Verse 1, Herod stretched forth his hand and you go to verse 25 of chapter 12 and it says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem. So the point of the narrative is Barnabas and Saul were present to feel and to witness that terrible event. They were in that little group, in that upper room with the ecclesia in Jerusalem when the ecclesia was horrified because an apostle had been beheaded. I mean, I, I, we've probably had 
very difficult emotional situations happen in our own lives, perhaps individually and maybe even ecclesially. But you can imagine the, the group there, the ecclesia gathered, thinking, what's going on? An apostle has just lost his life. And guess who is in the midst of all of that? Barnabas and Saul. And the record says in verse 12, they're in the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, John Mark. So again, that's Barnabas's aunt, and he's got his cousin there, John Mark. Possibly the, the upper room, of course, that they were uh, regularly meeting in. But you can imagine that um, while they were there, and there's a couple of situations there, of course, Peter comes to that door and knocks on, and then Peter appears, so there's this whole swell of events. James being executed, Peter was taken to prison, but now he's released, now he's here. You can imagine the brothers and the sisters gathering together, praying uh, for strength, for support, for the family of, of James, uh, John the Apostle, uh, and then Peter knocks on the door and he's there. What a confusion of events. And for Saul, in the middle of all that, he would have known that at one stage he was the protagonist of all this sort of action. I mean, I wonder how he felt through this situation. And he would have had to gather the brothers and sisters around, this is Saul as well, and encourage and support them. So it's interesting the situations that God takes us through life, teaching us that we don't always necessarily have all the answers. And I'm sure the Ecclesia is wondering, why James and why Peter? Different. So we don't always have those answers, but we lean upon the wisdom and the providence of God. So that Acts chapter 11 and, this, and chapter 12, this whole situation connects us, and I want to come across now to Galatians chapter 2, because Paul makes a comment, and there's a whole situation here in Galatians chapter 2 that he, he's talking about that connects us to this particular event. So Galatians chapter 2 and verse 1, here it is, we've just looked at it. It says, 14 years after, and this is the chronology that why we can piece that. Uh, Saul's 10 years in Tarsus. It says, 14 years after my conversion, I went again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. Okay, so here it is. This is what we've just talked about. So it's prior to the Jerusalem conference. And Paul's point is in verse 1, that he's not influenced by human opinion, but by direct command and revelation of Christ. So that's chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Paul had direct revelation through an angel. He wasn't relying on pe people's opinions or rumour or innuendo or whatever to, to, to build his spiritual understanding. So there was a private meeting in verse 2, uh, and the outcome, of course, was that Titus wasn't required to be circumcised, and, of course, there was a whole cohesion uh, between uh, Saul, Barnabas, the brothers in Jerusalem that was uh, very, very helpful. And we'll notice in verse 9... Uh, James, Peter and John, who seemed to be, and this is James, the half-brother of the Lord, of course, the James the Apostle that had been beheaded, uh, seemed to be pillars. They gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles. So just a bit of background, because you might have been thinking, well, this was the Jerusalem conference. No, it's not the Jerusalem conference. It's just the incident we looked at prior to the Jerusalem conference, and I'm going to develop this why. Um, doubtful whether Acts 15 relates to Galatians 2, because if so, Paul's admitted one of his visits to Jerusalem, did he leave that, we just looked at it, did he leave that out? Because that would invalidate his whole argument if he'd already been to Jerusalem on a previous occasion. So it's got to be that one Acts chapter 11 and 12. Um, his in integrity would have been open to suspicion. Um, when we come to verse 11, of course, there's this a little bit of uh, tension between Peter and Paul. Uh, and we've just got to note, Peter went to Antioch before the Jerusalem conference because he, he wouldn't have harboured this situation and raised it again after the Jerusalem conference. Peter would not do that. He was a substantial proponent that uh, the extension of grace and mercy should be to the Gentile ecclesia, and there was a whole resolution there in Acts chapter 15, so it's got to come after Acts chapter 15. 
Uh, and that's why, why would Paul continue to draw attention to that if it had already been resolved? Um, it's extremely doubtful, brethren from James, would blatantly contradict the Jerusalem edict. And again, uh, would Barnabas be carried away? So this is the point I want to make. They were given the right hand of fellowship. There was a resolution there. Saul and Barnabas was there. They delivered the money to the ecclesia. Everything was sort of harmonious. However, when we come to verse 11, of course, Saul and Barnabas gone back to Antioch, and now Peter comes up to Antioch. Remember, this is before the Jerusalem conference, so things have still got to be sorted out. And it's there that Paul says, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. He stood with the Jews and the Gentiles separated. So this is, again, an ongoing issue up there in the Antioch ecclesia. And note our connection, our studies are on Barnabas. Here's a point coming out in verse 13. And the other Jews disassembled likewise with him in so much that Barnabas, Barnabas, Barnabas was carried away with their dissimulation. That was a shock to the Apostle Paul. Even Barnabas. So it shows the great respect and esteem that Paul had for Barnabas. It was an astounding situation where there was a split in the ecclesia and the brethren had come to Jerusalem. And even Paul says, I can't believe it. Even Barnabas was carried away. It's an amazing situation because Barnabas was a man of great character and great strength. We know he stood with the apostle, or he stood with Saul, helped him through the ministry. We know he's a good man. We've just talked about that. He was full of faith, but he defaults at this critical time. One commentator said this, quite harsh, I think. The defection of Barnabas was of a far more serious nature with regard to Gentile freedom than the vacillation of Peter. Barnabas, the foremost champion of Gentile liberty next to Paul, had become a turncoat. So Barnabas always stood alongside and progressed. You know, the Gentile expansion suddenly separated and it was all thrown into confusion. So it shows us a couple of things. You know, Barnabas, I guess, was human. He was emotive. And, of course, very sadly, the record says he, he stood with the other Jews. In fact, that word dissembled, uh, there with the other Jews dissembled, means to act in a concert or to join. It's like a face-off. There was a big split. There were two groups. It's almost like the, the warriors of David and Saul facing each other with their swords. And Paul uses very strong language. That word dissimulation at the end of verse 13 means hypocrisy. Um, it's used in 1 Peter 2 verse 1. Lay aside all malice, all guile, and hypocrisies. That's that word dissimulation. Like it's strong, strong language. So if two great friends had a problem in a moment of time, let's not imagine that our life's going to be always smooth. And I'm sure you've got, or you've had friendships that are sometimes being tested. Sometimes you think, why did that person react like that? Well, Saul and Barnabas had the, that same uh, particular issue. And I, I think, you know, for Paul it was a staggering moment, and perhaps for Barnabas as well, uh, as he stood aside, separated himself from Saul and stood with the Jews. And verse 14 says... Um, I said unto Peter before them all, and there's this whole argument that goes on in this particular case. And you can imagine Saul standing there and across from him is Barnabas, his great and long-standing friend. And I wonder how Barnabas' heart felt in that whole explosion, this inflammation. I wonder how Barnabas' heart really felt. Was he trying to you know, bridge the gap and he thought, well, you know what, if we can placate the, the, the Jewish contingent from Jerusalem, maybe we can get through this. You know, one wonders. Maybe he was hoping temporarily to go along with the Jerusalem party and smooth things on over later on. 
But you know, there's a positive point that comes out of this, which gives us a real insight into the character of Barnabas. I love this. Barnabas was his own man. Right, he didn't tiptoe around in the shadow of the Apostle Paul. And sometimes, you know, we'd imagine that uh, some of these great and prominent brethren, you just sort of be very careful to tiptoe and you didn't want to offend him. Barnabas had a backbone in which he would stand aside for a moment from someone he loved because he didn't think he was doing the right thing. I think it shows the fortitude and the strength of Barnabas to be able to do that. So he wasn't a puppet, he wasn't a pawn. He stood for his values and principles. And he stood against Paul. But you know what? There's another level to Barnabas' character, and that is the bigness of his heart, because he never retained that position, did he? He never opposed Paul for the rest of his life. He wasn't a bitter man. He was big enough to recognise his own mistake and reconcile with Paul. That takes a big, big man. And I'm sure all of us have had situations where we've had an argument and there's been a rift and we just don't know how to repair that. And maybe it's because of our own pride. And Barnabas was a big enough man with a big heart that even in the mistake that he made, he recognised it and he rebuilt his relationship with Paul. And in our next study, he's going to go off on mission work with him. What an amazing man. We've got this little comment here, which I think sometimes may affect us. Perhaps it's something of a comfort in our own problems to know that for a time, these two great friends were not in the same fellowship together. And we can have friends in life and we can see things differently and sometimes that leads to a divergence of views and, you know, we drift off on different pathways. Let's only make that a temporary thing. We don't want to make that a permanent, bitter thing. And Barnabas was a big enough man to repair that breach and to work together with Paul. And I find that just insightful there in that situation. We need to be able to recover and repair friendships, brothers and sisters. That is the Barnabas spirit. So in this whole situation, we learn this, uh, and particularly from Galatians 2, we learn this aspect of balance. Right? It's important not to over or underreact. Barnabas understood the feelings of the Jerusalem Ecclesia, but also felt the Antioch Ecclesia's great thankfulness for the grace of God. So he had that balance there, first of all, initially when he went there. He was prepared to go to another Ecclesia and city for a year and to help the advancement of his brothers and sisters. He was a man of enthusiasm. He encouraged others in their work. There was no jealousy as far as he was concerned. He was faithful. He didn't demand something of others that he didn't manifest. He was a good teacher. Again, we don't just hide behind the title that we're Christadelphians. We need to be able to be good teachers in the things that we talk about and the lives that we live. Motivation, sometimes we're called upon to, bridge, to be the bridge repairers for individuals or ecclesias, and that was Barnabas. And finally, we've just talked about recalibration. We need to be able to deal with our mistakes and not dwell on them. We need to recalibrate. Sometimes we need to you know, back off or move forward. That's all about relationships. And Barnabas is very practical in helping us and teaching us the importance of that. So, questions for ourselves. Do we criticise other ecclesias for what we perceive to be their failings and forget about the evidence of the grace of God? So that's the phrase that Barnabas used when he went to Antioch. wonder how we view other ecclesias. Do we look at their faults and think, oh, look at them? Do we have a purpose of heart to cleave to the Lord or, you know, we've been in the truth for 40 years and we're in neutral? Do we attempt to solve everything ourselves or are we prepared to call upon others to assist in building and restoring? So we need this brother here because, you know, he's got a, a special ability or he's, he's, he's very well-rounded to be able to help us through this situation. Barnabas committed to a year away from home. How committed are we to ecclesial service when the weather's too hot or cold? I mean, this is the test, isn't it? Too hot today, too cold, too busy, too tired. Barnabas committed for a year to go somewhere else to help brothers and sisters. Sometimes friendships break apart. Are we big enough and humble enough to rebuild and rework precious relationships 
for the betterment of the truth. that, brothers and sisters, is the barnabas spirit.